So, uh, six paragraphs, that's a lot of stuff. Uh, these Westminster divines, as they were called, um, they uh, put together this uh, Westminster Confession, um, and with great economy of words, as we sometimes say, I mean, these, these very terse, pithy statements are packed with theology, with substance, uh, that, um, yeah, we could easily um, spend uh, quite a bit more time here if we went through every uh, paragraph, which I'm not intending to do. So for the sake of time and these lovely kids, um, let's just uh, keep it to a healthy uh, length. So what I want to do is to uh, summarize these six paragraphs over three thoughts. Um, you know, the topic is, as you know, the covenant, and then uh, the need for covenant, God's covenant, the fulfillment of the covenant, and the life of the covenant. So what on earth is a covenant? Anybody? It's an agreement between two people. An agreement between two people, parties, yes. Anybody else? Another thought? Promise. Promise, okay. So uh, before I get myself in trouble and get all kinds of answers. <laughs> a covenant is a biblical concept. But the Bible utilizes what was already present in culture. So in the ancient um, Near East, Middle Eastern culture, the concept of covenant was certainly already established. And so God in his providence and wisdom utilized that, but of course gave it his twist. And so when ordinarily, um, in the ancient culture of course, which is so different from today, uh, but in the ancient culture, uh, a sovereign would make covenant with those who were his subjects, perhaps by having conquered them first, um, telling them that that he is, usually he, but she perhaps, you know, like the Queen of Sheba could possibly come to mind, but let's say he would have conquered them, and with that conquest would give them the privilege of being under his rule, uh, he would provide for them in some way, like safety, like militarily speaking, perhaps. But there would also be obligations. And so there would be blessing upon obedience and curse upon disobedience. So when God utilizes that ancient format or, or concept, um, convention, uh, for his purposes, we see that God the King is making the initiative to establish covenant with his people whom he chooses. Um, and that is where then we realize that we're so far removed from the ancient times versus today. Because today, um, you know, um, a person can make a contract, an agreement uh, with, um, you know, another person as two equal parties uh, and say, uh, let's do business together, for example. Well, uh, it's probably smart to have a piece of paper that states what each of the partner's obligations will be and so forth, um, to be legally covered as well. Uh, but we have to think biblically here. And so God is the king who initiates the agreement, and by his rules and terms, his people will uh, obey them. Um, so now when we focus specifically on how that covenant is revealed in God's word, we uh, notice in paragraph one that, um, first of all, 
the distance, it says, between God and creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension of God's on God's part. So it is simply saying that uh, apart from the fall, which we immediately get into, of course, with the covenant of works, um, this is a, a unilaterally arranged agreement, covenant, and it is uh, steeped in God's condescension, in his, uh, in his love, in his mercy. So all biblical covenants, you could say, are gracious. But the principle upon which the covenant of works operates is that the uh, acknowledgement is made that in the uh, book of Genesis we are uh, encountered with uh, man's fall. So before Adam and Eve fell in sin, God had made an arrangement, we call that the covenant of works, and by the works obedience, they would eventually obtain their eternal reward. So it was purely, then it was a gracious initiative, but as such it was a works-based arrangement so that Adam and Eve, had they not fallen in sin, by their obedience would have earned their salvation and their posterity as well. Um, I don't know that they would say earn it for them. I imagine that, that all individuals you know, would um, you know, uh, be under the command to obey the works covenant. But... From what we know from the pages of Scripture, that covenant was broken, and the penalty of breaking it is that in the day you eat thereof, you shall die. So that is the uh, acknowledgement that the arrangement has been broken, the covenant with God has been broken by the other partner, and what would be the, ret uh, the result of that? Retribution. Um, death means here not just physical death, but spiritual, eternal death. So... The Reformed perspective really highlights the central place that the concept of the covenant plays in God's story or history of redemption, or his plan of redemption. Uh, so the covenant concept is like a red thread that, that weaves itself through the pages of history, of biblical history. Um, it is the way by which God uh, brings the people to himself and through the fulfillment of his covenant promises that that people receives and obtains, appropriates by faith the blessings therein, that which is, uh, the, that which is the, the, the substance of the, of the promise, uh, life, life with God. So there is a need for the covenant, first of all, because we are fallen sinners, and God, upon Adam's fall, graciously came back to them and said, where are you? Remember that in Genesis 3? Um, uh, they, they were hiding from God because they knew their sin and sinfulness. Um, and so God comes to them and through the promise given them in uh, Genesis 3 that uh, of the woman will come the one who will crush the, the serpent's head. Uh, we know that that means the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who by his death did the very thing. His death crushed Satan's head because it was payment for our sin. Um, because God is a just God. God is not a willy-nilly God. He's, uh, he's totally reliable in that regard. He is completely and perfectly just. 
so he takes uh, his word very seriously, as we should too then. Um, but uh, he will do what he says. And so in the day you eat thereof, you will die. But, and that is the gospel, but, <laughs> uh, important word in the New Testament, but the gospel. And that's our testimony today. But for the sake of God's gospel, we are who we are in Christ Jesus. A new creation, old is gone, the new has come. Um, and we're forever people of God. Uh, but there is certainly then the need for covenant because um, yeah, who would we be if God did not reach out to us and make a covenant arrangement with us by which to experience the life of God uh, that he has for his people. So the fulfillment of the requirement of the covenant of works um, was left unfulfilled. Uh, our obedience was required. Uh, that uh, being impossible now in our fallen condition, um, the need for the new covenant uh, is, uh, is there. And um, that makes often people think that there are two covenants. Uh, and the terminology is confusing because we have such a fixed term for these things. Covenant of works, covenant of grace. Um, but when you post-fall look at the history of redemption, then God has one covenant. Um, the fact that the Bible talks about the new covenant is not that God introduces something new, new, new into this arrangement, but it is the new eschatologically. It is the new of in Christ that the realities promised obtain their fulfillment. And so when we think about the covenant of grace, it is the substance uh, from which the saint in the Old Testament partook by faith, as well as you and I today partake. We trust in God's, in God's promise, which is the central theme of his covenant of grace for all time. The confession acknowledges that there are different administrations. In the Old Testament, we have the arrangement by which the realities foretold, foreshadowed, uh, are found in those ceremonies and types and figures and so forth that the Old Testament Israelites were called to accomplish and fulfill and keep. Um, but that uh, is a uh, foreshadowing then of the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So the saint of the Old Testament, like Abraham, placed his trust in Christ because he is the essence of the covenant of grace. In him, be it future for him, is fulfilled um, the demand of the covenant that we be perfect. And we are not. But he is our source of hope. When we trust in him, he is the one who, through whom God still gives us what we don't deserve. That righteousness that God requires of each and every one of us. And so the fulfillment of the law is accomplished by the Lord Jesus' obedience. Um, and we express the gratitude for that obedience, the confession tells us, in the Christian church, by the gospel preached and by way of the administration and participation in the uh, sacraments that the Lord himself has ordained, being to baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, and that leads me to the final point, the life of the covenant. Um, it was always God's intent 
that those with whom he made covenant, um, Adam and Eve to begin with, that they would participate in the life that he had for them in that covenant arrangement. Uh, because they would have, they were in a state of righteousness to begin with, but it was in need of its own perfection by way of obedience. But nevertheless, in that way of obedience, they would have enjoyed the life of fellowship in the Lord, the Creator. Um, but through the fall, the coming of Christ, our Lord, undoing what Adam did, and accomplishing what he left undone, obedience, we are the beneficiaries of that obedience, and we enjoy in Christ through the Holy Spirit the life uh, that we have uh, now and forever uh, because of him. I'm going to leave it at that. Um, I know I missed a whole bunch of things, I'm sure. Um, but maybe there's a question or so. Well, that doesn't often happen uh, when the covenant is discussed. <laughs> Let's give thanks to God. Yes, Tim. Um, I need a sec. Yes. In the last paragraph, of uh, chapter 7, there's a reference to various dispensations. Yes. And I wonder if you could uh, just kind of elaborate on that for us a little bit. I think I have a pretty good idea what that means. Well, let me ask you, what do you think? Years ago, I heard that that is a kind of a smart way if, you, if I don't know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's one covenant. It's always been a covenant of grace. Yeah. Post fall. Yeah. Yes. Post fall. Um, well, when we talk about various dispensations, um, we're talking about, um, we're not talking about different covenants, but sometimes you hear people speak of the Noahic yeah. covenant, yeah. right? Davidic, yeah. The Davidic covenant, yeah. the, the covenant at Sinai. Yeah. Um, is that what's being referred to here? Um. My, my comment to your question uh, was going to be like this. Um, when we deal with persons who are not of the Reformed persuasion, we typically uh, encounter folks who are of a dispensational theology background. And they would argue against the Reformed perspective by making mention of the fact yeah, uh, you talk about you know the covenant uh, you know, of Sinai, uh, or the covenant of grace initiated with Adam and Eve, you know, post fall where the promise was given them, and to posterity uh, that the Messiah would eventually. That they would say um, to argue for their persuasion. Yeah, well, that was one among many, uh, and so you have the Mosaic, the Sinaitic, uh, the Abrahamic, the Noahic, the Davidic uh, covenants. Uh, what's the big deal? 
there's so many of them. Um, but uh, that is not an argument from our perspective to say that therefore there is this radical total shift between, uh, in, in essence, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, because uh, God, we believe that God reveals to us in his word that the sinner is saved in the Old Testament by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And in order to keep that together and that emphasis straight and clear, we are saying there is only one covenant, the covenant of grace, divided over what we usually say two dispensations. And that refers to eras in history, Old Testament before Christ and that new covenant that is inaugurated by the person of Christ due to his obedience. So, uh, yeah, it says under various dispensations. I frankly admit that I don't know for sure what the authors maybe had in mind beyond what I'm saying. I would just say there are two dispensations prior post-Christ. Um, well, and at the, some point you encounter the limitations of language, yeah. right? Because um, there's, you can't, there's no analogy for this. Right? Yeah. What do you mean? What do I mean? Yeah, I, there's no See, there you go. Limitations of language. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying is, I'm, a, I'm import. You know, I'm, 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 I'm immigrant. You know, and my language skills are just not up to par. Anyway. Yes. That's great. <laughs> oh, but. Um, so when we talk about a dispensation, it's not like God is doing something new, right? It's not like um, somehow this has changed the terms of salvation. There's nothing new in the essence. The promise, <clears throat> excuse me, God's promise of grace, of gospel promise in Christ there is no change or evolution in that. But its application certainly is. Because the promise is, as it were, on hold in the Old Testament. Uh, there is uh, an embargo you know, on the fulfillment and the richness of that which is promised in the Old Testament. It's, it's restrained. But for the purpose of God's, you know, plan that in time, however gradually it would take place, these would be fulfilled then ultimately in that person and work of Christ. So in him, the new life, that always means eschatologically, by which I simply, simply mean that this world requires something new, <laughs> like paradigm new. The paradigm of Adam fallen, us with him, is the one paradigm and that rules and operates and affects life in this world and this world is in need of the new paradigm, you know, the new principle and that is the resurrection. And so resurrection life, eternal life, newness of life, cosmic new life, the new creation life is promised in seed form in the one covenant be it before Christ in those forms, but in its essence the same as we enjoy it today by faith. And we too are still on that embargo, if you will, because we, by faith, are 
experiencing it by faith. Why do we come back to church? Why do we keep partaking of the Lord's Supper? Because we have not yet obtained it fully. We are miserable sinners. We mess up. We break down. Um, and uh, we say, Jesus, come quickly. Because we are <laughs> desperately in need of the perfection. Um, but it is and remains always in promise then form. Whether it be for Abraham or for you and me. We trust the promise. Promise fulfilled in Christ, but awaiting its culmination, its fulfillment when Jesus returns. I don't know, Tim. <laughs> I'm thinking of Simeon and Anna. Ah, yeah. The two faithful guys. I'd have to call them saints. Yeah. What they were. They were looking forward to the Messiah, yeah. and they said, "Lord, yeah. what a great blessing you've given to us yeah. that we haven't departed from this yeah. life without seeing." Yeah. Messiah. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you we say that, right? We wish that the Lord would give a few uh, footnotes in the Bible mm -hmm. to explicate uh, more, you know, the text. But we have to, quote-unquote, assume here that the, the testimonies of these two saints were testimonies of believers. Because what is an Old Testament believer versus a New Testament believer? It's a believer who trusts in God's Word that he will send the Messiah, that he will bring a deliverance through the Messiah to us. And that is our Christian hope. And that was Anna's hope and Simeon's hope, the one they longed for. So I totally agree. Um, these were saints of God. These were the elect, the believers. God be praised. Yes. Okay. Um, Next week, our brother Seely is coming, so uh, I assigned him another chapter. <laughs> so be gracious, and uh, um, I like Nick. He's a good man. Um, I met him at Synod, actually, in Buffalo, New York, a few months ago. Uh, he has a good head, very sharp. Um, he's a good man. Uh, he's, uh, he's an engineer. Did you meet him, Chris? No? No, but uh, he's an engineer. Oh, oh, you've met him, right? Of course. Um, he's a good guy, um, but he feels the call, senses the call to the ministry, and so he's uh, studying while working, I think, um, to become an ordained pastor in one of our churches. But, so he will, I believe, take care of... Take care. <laughs> Chapter 8, Christ the Mediator. Well, let's close uh, in prayer and then sing 111B. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your covenant of grace. Thank you that in your mercy you did not leave us in our sin in Adam, but you retrieved us, you rescued us, you redeemed us. And not potentially, um, not possibly, um, but you redeemed us effectively, effectually. Uh, you purchased us by name. And so we are yours and we belong to you. Uh, through faith in Christ, the fulfillment um, of the covenant of grace. And Father, that grace is what we need till our last breath. So, Lord, continue to give us that longing and strengthen that longing for you and for your return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.